what are your thoughts around measuring success by wealth? I think I'm just kind of falling into the conversation because we're having an interesting conversation. So oh, it is, it is. So uh, now I'm starting to think oh, I better test my words here because uh, oh, so, okay. It's not often with a podcast guest that I just almost fall into the conversation, and then we end up using that as the episode, especially when you've never met that guest before. But with this week's guest, Michael Dominguez, it just felt natural from the start, and I think that in part is the reason for his success. I would actually, in some cases, talk people out of a property that I didn't think was a good fit for them. We have quite the far-reaching conversation from real estate investing to baseball and everything in between. And Michael shares his best and sometimes contrarian advice on what it takes to build a brand in real estate and how to build a successful real estate investing business that can fund a life you want, your best life. So pull up an armchair, sit back, and take a listen. All that after the break. This is REI Branded, the podcast all about building your real estate investing personal brand. My name is Paul Copcott, and my mission is to help you, the busy real estate investor, stand out from the crowd so that people can find you easily, want to work with you, and can't wait to refer you. Meaning that you can build a successful real estate investing business without feeling inauthentic, overwhelmed with marketing, or spending all day doing it. Because marketing is how you get their attention, but personal branding is why they choose you. But before we begin, if you're a real estate investor looking to build your business and stand out from the crowd, and you don't want to wait for all the knowledge, strategies, and how-tos to be slowly delivered to you via this podcast every week, then I invite you to apply for the REI Branded Audit. That's the process I've created that has already helped dozens of real estate investors to define and develop their personal brands and build their real estate investing businesses. This audit is a mind-focusing, eye-opening insight addressing key questions like, is your message clear and consistent? Do you stand out as being different? Are you on people's radars and inspiring them enough to reach out and want to know more? The application only takes a few minutes and the link is in the show notes. After you apply, if it seems like I can help, we'll set up an initial conversation to explain the audit in more detail and answer any questions you have. So if you're a real estate investor who's committed to building your personal brand and business this year, then I invite you to apply for the REI Branded Audit. Now, back to the show. And you came from a corporate background, I noticed, uh, pet value. and Yeah. Yeah. yeah, up until 2007, I was doing the traditional nine to five, uh, actually, well, nine to five plus a side hustle as well. And I was working 60 hours a week and I sat down at, I was getting close to 40 years of age and I had a net worth of virtually nothing, and yet I'd been promoted a couple of times, and and I just knew there was something that I was doing incorrectly, and I, I had all these aspirations when I was, people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up, and everyone would say, I want to be a fireman, a policeman, what have you. I I, I was the cocky guy, so I wanted to be a millionaire, and, and that's just what I wanted. I wanted to be successful. I, I measured success by, by wealth at the time, and I just wasn't accomplishing any of my goals, and and so I had the opportunity to go into real estate as a realtor. And then I quickly gravitated to the investors. And from there, it just grew and, you know, it became, it became my specialty. Hmm. And now that you're kind of on the other side and you're successful, so that kind of interesting, Michael, what is your view now of success? Do you measure that by wealth? Because you're, you're successful now and you've got your portfolio and you've got your real estate investing. 
certainly there's always going to be an element of success that's tied to money. And again, a lot of the old standbys of money doesn't buy you happiness. Well, I've been poor and I've been wealthy. And I can tell you, I'm a lot happier as a wealthy person. <laughs> uh, but, but what I measure true success with now is I'm a bit of an event bucket list kind of guy. And I'm always setting goals of things I want to do and accomplish and see and be. And, and so it's not necessarily tied with net worth. It's tied with as many once in a lifetime experiences as I can attain in my lifetime. Is that where the love of the LA Dodgers comes from? <laughs> <laughs> my dad was born in the states and uh, multi-generational in, in uh, florida and new york as far as from from my dad's side of things he ended up meeting <laughs> he met my mom in a in a bar in a, in, a, in a hotel bar in florida on vacation on Miami beach and my mom was on vacation and then he ended up flying basically he ended up moving to canada to be with my mom so then that's yeah. sort of that's the short story but but yeah so that's why i'm dominguez in canada <laughs> And do you have dual nationality? I do actually. Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. That's well. It is. It's it's a bit of a pain in the ass from a taxation standpoint. When I wasn't making any money, it was perfectly fine. But then, as my growth happened in terms of net worth as well as income, it became a challenge. And I've been using some really good lawyers that, or lawyers and accountants that have been helping me out. But it's there's a lot of complications. And as a matter mm -hmm. of fact, there's things even this week or last week that I was learning about. I've got a TFSA, as we all do, and TFSAs are not recognized in the United States, and it creates a real tax issue. So I'm actually cashing up my TFSA next week, and I'm putting it all into uh, my, one of my corporations because I can get much of the same tax benefits through that. So it's it's just it's complicated, but it's not it, it's a good thing, but it's complicated. I've been a Dodger fan since. Oh, this is I don't know how many people are old enough to know. Well, my first favorite TV shows were Brady Bunch and Adam Twelve. And both took place in the Los Angeles area. And they had a lot of background scenes with palm trees and beaches. And I just, I was enamored with everything LA. I just loved the concept of LA. And, and so I became a Dodger fan as a result of that. I became a Los Angeles Kings fan. I became a Los Angeles Lakers fan. Like I just loved everything LA. And it was almost like it was calling me. And so now fast forward 40 some odd years, almost, almost not quite 50 years. I've had the opportunity now to live in Orange County, which is just outside of LA. And honestly, it's everything I was expecting. It's it's where I belong. <laughs> it's where I should have been. That's where you were in a past life or something. Is that yeah. Right? It's funny you say that because I had an opportunity as part of my growth, I had an opportunity to meet with a someone who was very spiritual. And although it certainly is out of my comfort zone, absolutely. But I went on a retreat and and they talk about past lives and such like that. And uh, she was saying, you've got a real connection with the water. And I, I see you being just close to the water. That's your thing. And some of the things she was saying are, you, know, you start rolling your eyes and say it's a little hokey, but there were some things she was coming up with. I'm saying, holy crap. So, <laughs> so that's become sort of an ongoing joke with my wife and I is that I'm one with the water. So, <laughs> and I don't necessarily need the boat or anything like that. But just honestly, there's something soothing about standing on a balcony seeing the beach and the ocean and the surfers and the, the waves coming in the palm trees in the background the the cool breeze coming in honestly i could i could feel my heart rate just slowing down when i'm there and it just it just i just feel healthier i feel better about myself when, when i'm mm. out there so nice and what's what are the kind of 
lifetime experiences. Give us some examples of what you've done. Oh, well, I'm a baseball fan. And as a baseball fan, ballpark chaser, they call it. I've been able to travel around the world to baseball games. And so I've been to World Baseball Classic Games, which is sort of the Olympics for baseball. They have multiple countries. And I've been to every, they've, they've had four of them in 2006, 9, 13, and 17, I think it was. And I've been to different cities watching them. I've been to uh, 40 different Major League Baseball parks watching baseball. I've also traveled to Japan and Cuba for that. So that's, baseball has been an important, but just traveling and, well, I'll stay on the sports theme, being at the 2010 Olympics and seeing the first gold medal accomplished by a Canadian on, on Canadian soil. That was something that was really a big, a big thing in the time in 2010 in Vancouver. Sports are, have always been a big deal, but, but just traveling, just trying to experience as much as I can, whether it's on a cruise ship or, or, or sometimes we go for a week or two. I had the opportunity a few years ago, my, my mother, well, actually my grandparents were born in Lithuania on my mom's side. And my mom had never been to Lithuania. And so just a few years ago, I did a genealogy search and found out where they, where they were born and where they grew up. And I had the opportunity to go see where they were from. That's sort of my roots scenario. Right. And, and again, it's just, I try to make a list of things I want to accomplish in or see or do or accomplish in my lifetime. And then the next step is to just make it happen. Like you have to first plan it and then make steps to make it happen. Any advice on making it happen? Because I think a lot of people are quite happy to write the bucket list, but it it stays on the bucket list. I'm a goal setter. And that's something that that I recommend for anyone to actually make, not just 10-year goals and five-year goals and one day I'll do this. And that's a bucket list of sorts, but to actually make time-sensitive goals. And that's something I applied to my business and was very effective in doing that is I was setting, in many cases, one-week goals, one-month goals, three-month goals, and one-year goals. And with the exception of weight loss, I did a really good job of accomplishing most of those goals. And net worth goals, for sure, education goals, for sure, and travel goals, for sure. Like Those are things that I know it it may sound simplistic, but unless you start making the steps and starting to do the research and actually calling a travel agent or or going on the internet and sort of finding the actual day you want to go, it's it's just never going to happen. So so it's one thing to wish and dream, but it's a whole thing altogether is to actually start to take the steps to make it happen. When you started in real estate, 2008 was not a great year. I mean, I know Canada didn't get as affected as the US, but yeah. that would, was that not kind of a crazy, crazy decision to go and look at real estate when the market was potentially going to yeah. Well, to be fair, I, I made my decision in, in the end of 07 and the first half of, of 2008 was very successful, actually. And it was so amusing. I basically started in real estate in March, April. And by May, I was actually the realtor of the month for my for my brokerage. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is easy. Come on. Like, <laughs> I'm the realtor of the month on my second month for business. What the heck? And then all of a sudden, October came along and, and everything just stopped. And now, I was in a bit of a better place than some people because I had a, a spouse that was making very good money. And we, we had built a plan that said, okay, we have some reserve funds as well as a spouse who's bringing in income. So even if my business failed completely, we'd be okay. And that comfort level made me a better salesperson because I wasn't ever in a, in a state of desperation. I was more trying to, to just 
offer the best service for my clients. So thankfully, the market wasn't that long being destroyed. And, but actually, it taught me a really valuable lesson as well is I just had started working with investors prior to when the slowdown happened. And, and I didn't have many investors in my database, but the ones that were really didn't, they saw it as an opportunity versus a runaway sort of situation. And so actually, I did a couple of deals in the six months from October to about March with investors. And I was thinking, well, geez, they're buying right now. And, and actually, I didn't have a terrible six-month period as a result of that. And I was seeing the success that, that they were achieving and the cash flow that were, they were generating. And I just started thinking, that's, that's where I need to be. That's where I need to go. And so even though the market was a little slower, I used that as an opportunity to learn and educate. So it really wasn't, it, it didn't hit me as hard as it hit some people for sure. Mm. It does surprise me because from what I understand, a lot of realtors are not investors. That's they, correct. Is it important, do you think, for an investor to work with a realtor who is an investor? You knew the, that was a setup, but that is the best you can do, Paul. The answer is absolutely. It. But if, I don't know how many realtors are listening to this show right now, but if I could offer my realtor friends any bit of advice that I can, is I could tell you that becoming an investor not only has changed my life financially, but it made me a heck of a lot better as a realtor. I'm able to answer questions that many realtors wouldn't be able to answer. I'm able to, to put together deals that are just far too creative for the average person. And it's because I've been, I've been encountering those transactions over and over and over again. And, and how I grew my business was what I focused on was I started to fake it till I could make it. And I felt like I was a bit of an imposter at times, but I started to advertise myself as an investor agent. And I changed all my branding to support that. My website was entirely focused on investors, where many times the realtors, they have sort of in a bottom corner, a little icon, click here if you're an investor. And you know, then they have the, the standard page of information as far as what an investor is. And I changed the model with that. I went completely investor focused and I essentially abandoned my residential people. Now, to be honest, I still do the odd residential deal, but I went investor focused exclusively. And so I bought in 100%. I attended every meetup I could. I attended, I met with as many investors as I could. I learned what they were doing. I visited as many properties as I could that were investor related. And then most importantly, I took action and bought my first investment property. And I have to be honest, my first couple I bought, I bought as much as anything to make me a more believable realtor, more so than a wealth builder. And but that quickly switched over the course of the first few years. I started to see the, the merits of that. And, and, it, and it just changed my life. It, it, it really did. Are you still doing the realtor side of things or are you very much now focused on your portfolio and, and investing? No, well, I, I'm not as active as I used to be. We rebranded our, our name to a company called Doors to Wealth. And uh, again, it was blatantly investor focused. And that's what our brand is, is Doors to Wealth. And we've been very successful helping hundreds of people in the Durham and Eastward region to buy cash flow generating and wealth building investment properties for both themselves and their families. So absolutely. I could tell you that I personally don't do nearly as many deals as I used to. I'm in a position now where I can go away for a few months at a time. I, I have helped some of my long-term clients, 
But at this point, my goal is just to take all the education and the incredible wealth of knowledge that was taught to me by mentors that had really no need to share that knowledge because they'd already reached their level of success, but yet they passed it down to the next generation of investors. And I just felt it to be my obligation to do the same for the next generation as well. And it, it does strike me, I was sharing kind of how I got into the, with you earlier about the real estate investing space, but it it's interests me how much real estate investors are willing to do that versus other industries. And you and I both come from corporate backgrounds and it's kind of dog eat dog almost. <laughs> and it's, it really it's, is. It's the complete yeah. opposite. It surprised me. And we all know the cliche of the rich guy who they want all the money for themselves and they're hoarding it all. And, and if somebody's trying to climb up the ladder, you're kicking them, the, the rich person's kicking them down as best they can because they want to hoard it for themselves. The reality is nothing like that, just nothing like that. And I can tell you that in virtually every time I've ever speak, spoken to someone who has had a level of success, to sort of say, can I pick your brain for a little bit? Or can I ask them a little question? And, and they've said yes. And, and I've spoken to some really prominent people. And every time they've answered my questions and they've given me support when I've needed it most. And I'll always be eternally grateful for their support. Do you have a sense of to why that is though? <laughs> well, I think that what I did not know back when I was getting started is I always felt that wealth was, there was a limited amount of wealth. And if I made a dollar, that means I had to take a dollar from somebody else. If I bought a property, that means somebody else couldn't buy that property. And I quickly realized in the investor world that they were more of a community and they got excited. If, 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 if I saw you buy a property, I would stand up and applaud, pat you on the back and, and cheer you on. And, and then you would do the same for me. And because I just don't have the resources to buy everything. I just don't. And so like my business, I actually purchased a, an investment property, one property every year for 10 straight years. And there were a couple of years where I bought two. So for the average human, that's considered to be extremely aggressive in terms of making things happen. But there are thousands and thousands of properties that come on the market. The fact that I'm buying one property, I, as a realtor, I'm not a, I'm not a threat to you. As a matter of fact, you, if, if I was working for you, you would be pleased that your realtor was so excited about properties that they would buy it. And, and there were times where I would tell clients, I'd say, I'm ready to buy. If you don't want this one, I'm going to buy it myself. And that's a pretty powerful message because a lot of times they were sort of on the fence and I would get them off the fence really well. And one other thing that I did, again, talk, talking to the realtors, is I did something that was at the time considered almost forbidden. If, can you imagine if I had four first-time home buyers and the four first-time home buyers, I would put all in my van at the same time and I would show the five available properties that were similar to each other that, and they would go out and say, okay, who wants this one? Who wants it? Who wants it? And they would freak out. But what I was doing with investors is I was having investor tours in the pre-pandemic world. And we'd go out in 15, 20 of us in some cases going in vans. We'd do this whole caravan situation. And at the end of the tour, I'd say, all right, who wants to buy one? And then Tom would say, I want one. And Justin would say, I want this one. And Justin was saying, well, I was thinking about buying that one, but since you want it, I'll buy this one. Like it was, it was so bizarre uh, because again, they just weren't competitive with each other. And sometimes two people really want it and say, well, let's go in it together. It was just, it's just a different brand of people. And, and it's a great network to be part of. 
Yeah, it's funny. There's a, an old neighbor of mine, when he was about 18, he was sitting, I think, outside of Tim Hortons or something, and somebody pulled up in a Porsche, a Porsche 911. I'm talking 20 plus years ago. And he kind of drooled at it. As an 18 year old, you kind of look at a car like that. And the guy said, we said, oh, I'm just going in for coffee. Do you like the car? And he said, yeah, he goes, throws him the keys and said, take it for a spin around the block. And he goes, what? So he drove, apparently very tentatively drove this Porsche around there. And the guy was waiting as he came back. And he said, do you like it? And he said, well, I love it. He said, do you want to know how to get one like this? And he said, yeah. He goes, great. I'm a real estate investor and this is what I do. And if you put in the time, I'll show you how to do it. And literally, I think within 10 years, he had 50 student rentals in Hamilton. And Wow, uh, that's a great he, story. He just followed what that guy told him to do. And the guy never took a dollar from him. It, it was all mentoring and he was just paying it forward. And that's the sense I get with a lot of people. It sounds like what that's what you're doing now is you're paying it forward. To be fair, I have not thrown my keys of my Corvette convertible at anyone <laughs> at this point, with the exception of a couple of friends of mine that have always dreamed about it. But that's, but no, for the most part, I haven't thrown my keys at a random Tim Hortons kid. So no, that has not happened. But, I but yeah, I like to help. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I probably wouldn't either. But. <laughs> <laughs> but so you talked about branding your business and, and switch, making that switch to investors. What are the lessons that you can pass on to a real estate investor or a realtor about the importance of branding and the lessons that you learned from doing that? Well, first of all, and actually I feel bad because we didn't actually have the, the normal introductions because I was all set to say that I'm having a brandtastic day. I just want to share that with you. <laughs> <Thank> so, you. <laughs> so branding has been an integral part of my growth as, a, as an investor agent. And I learned a lesson really early on, which always was really valuable to me is to make your business grow larger, make your focus smaller. And so I didn't want to be the be all and end all for everything real estate related. If you came to me and was looking for a land deal or a cottage or, or try to think of another thing, a warehouse, I'm not your guy. I was focused on multi-unit residential real estate. That was my niche. That's what I promoted. Yeah, I can help somebody do a residential deal. As a matter of fact, my neighbor across the street is about to list their property and they're listing with somebody else. And I'm okay with that because that's not my niche. Where my niche was, I stayed within my lane and all of my promotions, all of my efforts, the shirt I was wearing, everything was related to constantly promoting myself as being the expert. And, and yeah, there were times that I felt like I was an imposter. But I just put myself out there. I would speak as often as I could. I'd go to every meetup that I could possibly attend all over Ontario, Canada, for those that aren't in this area. And I would just always be known as the investor guy and focus more in the Durham region. And it changed my life. It's Once people recognized me as such, and I won awards for being such, even though I didn't feel I knew that much, but people were saying, oh, he's the expert. And, and sometimes... It, as shocking as this is, I would attend a meetup and they'd say, oh, Michael's here. And sometimes I'd have four or five people standing in line waiting to talk to me to give me their information because they wanted to work with me. And I feel that's a pretty effective use or an ability to brand yourself in a certain way and put in the effort to become as knowledgeable as you can be and then pass that on to your clients. And you, you've highlighted for me is that the beauty of a good brand is you get those people queuing up because the word has spread. Some, somebody said something about you when you weren't there yeah. enough 
that 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 person trusts that referral or recommendation enough that they're going to go and talk to you. So, and what about the armchair investor? Tell us a little bit about that in the book and how you came to do that. Yeah. I felt that there was a real void in a lot of the wealth books that exist in, in the real estate sector. And so many of the books are uh, written by and written for the guy who's buying the, the 10th and the 20th or the 100th property and joint venturing or, or flipping for profit where they talk about, and it's funny how they talk about making money on the buy. They spend a lot of time talking about how to take advantage of grandma and make sure that you get the best deal you could possibly do. And then they talk about the selling aspect, but they, in a buy and hold situation, there's very little time that's spent in those, spent in those boring years of the hold. And I use that with the cliche boring. And I started to teach a message in my group call uh, and my, my, my phrase that I use all the time is a quality property in a quality neighborhood fight attracts you to quality tenants, making you quality profits. And even during the pandemic, I could tell you that I had $0.00 of lost rent because I had tenants in many cases with credit scores of 700 plus that were, didn't lose their job. They didn't want to miss a payment. And then I reached out to most of my database. And at first, even during the first few months, I was tracking how many people were not paying rent, but I stopped doing it because none of them were not paying rent. It was a hundred percent payment across my entire, except there were maybe one or two people, but they were already not paying rent. It had nothing to do with the pandemic. And it's because we bought the right property in the right neighborhood, attracted the right tenant. And that's what made all the difference in the world. And so I felt that that message really wasn't uh, being delivered. And a lot of people that were pretty successful in their nine to five job, and they were looking at developing ways of building wealth, they were looking for an opportunity to maybe have a side hustle that could really make a difference. If you looked at your net worth, and I'm just taking the average person, the average Canadian, and if let's say their house that they bought for $500,000 and is now worth a million dollars, so they've, and maybe there's also been some mortgage pay down. So they've built up five or $600,000 in wealth from that property. And then they, you ask them in all honesty, how much wealth did you build from your equities and your other investments? In most cases, the real estate represented 80 to 90% of the wealth that they've built up. And I said, imagine if you did that three or four times. And they say, yeah, but I don't want to deal with a tenant. I don't want to have, like, I've heard horror stories of what could happen. And so the book was written to sort of say, if you find the right type of property in the right type of neighborhood, you can be very successful as a side hustle that will take a couple hours a month that can literally change your life. It can allow you to retire years earlier. It can allow you to be an opportunity to support your children as they're going through school or buying their first house or whatever. And, and that's really what I was trying to deliver. Book. And what I'm hearing is, because I, I think a lot of people think, well, I've got to have 50 doors or 100 doors for it to even be successful. That's right. And, but you're not saying, you're saying, no, that's not the case. And it, it could be half a dozen. Or it could be two. It could be one. One property, if let's say the wherewithal to, and the avatar who I'm sort of reaching to in this, in this book is either the, the millennial or the first potential first time home buyer who is currently renting right now. So by house hacking and finding a property where they could live in one unit and rent out another is an incredible opportunity to build wealth. Yeah, it's not their dream house. It's not the same house that mom and dad used to live in, but it's a house that you could afford. 
it's probably a better rental than you're currently living in now, and you're building some real significant wealth. So I talk a lot about that. And the other avatar is the couple that they both have a, a really solid nine to five income. They've bought their house. They've built some equity in their home, especially with the surge in values across North America in the last few years. So they've got a lot of equity. They realize that half to three quarters or more of their net worth has come as a result of their house, but they want to know the secret to get to that next, buy that next property. That And, and my goal is for them to get a, even just three properties because three properties in this country, in good markets within 10 years will make you a millionaire. That's, that's okay. And do you see, I mean, at the moment, you know, the, or for the last two years, the market has been well, frothy, should we say, for, for the least. But the house hacking, that first avatar you talked about, that's almost how they're going to have to buy their first property, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's you... For a first-time buyer, I believe that is the best avenue. Uh, so many people are still gravitating towards those inexpensive Toronto condos or something like that. But in many cases, it's a one-bedroom, 600-square-foot box in the sky. And that's not a terrible decision. If you're going to utilize the downtown core and live your best life, it's not the worst thing you can do. But if you can also instead uh, a duplex in Pickering, yeah, it's not quite as attractive as that uh, that condo on in near the Queens Key, but you can certainly build a lot more. It's not only a bigger unit and it's got a backyard, but it's 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 also got rental income and you're paying a heck of a lot less per month in terms of fees for it. So I'm a huge advocate for that for sure. What advice do you have for real estate investors that are perhaps looking to do a client base like that or? looking to get passive investors? Yeah, well, the first thing I would advise is, is buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> and again, just so you guys are aware, I make a whopping five or $6 per book. So this is not going to be a wealth generator for me. And, and I knew that going in. I wrote the book. My problem with a lot of investors is that they almost, in some cases, they're almost too complicated. They're too sophisticated. For their own good and a lot of the people that they're speaking with don't have the, the terminology that we use here even the term rei like any investor would know what rei is but if i had never considered buying an investment property before i'd say what the hell is our like i don't even know what that is and but a lot you know someone who's in the in the industry would know exactly what that means and there is all sorts of times people do that so sometimes Learn what the potential investors might be looking for, what their goals are. They want to build wealth. They want it to be as, as low risk as possible. They want it to be as hands-free as possible. That may include property management. That, and, and what I advise to any realtor is to start to build a team of people in your community that you can now recommend so that you're the everything for that person and, and eliminate any opportunities for the, for the buyer to sort of dismiss it and say, oh, it's just too complicated for me. It becomes almost so simple. And I was never afraid to introduce the newbie investor with the more established, experienced investor and include them all. And in many cases, it was put my own little parties together. And I'd constantly be introducing people to each other and invite them into my investor family. And, and before they knew it, they were, they were moving forward. It just was, it was obvious to do anything you couldn't even consider not moving forward when you saw eight people around you and they're all very successful and they're not any smarter than you are. So just, yeah, I got to do this. And is it vital to find off-market properties? Absolutely not. That's something that's such a myth out there. 
making it, don't get me wrong. I want to get a deal as much as anybody else. I'm not going to lie to you. I love it when I get, get it for 30,000 or 50,000 below what I deem to be market value. But there are properties that I've purchased that are at market value. And in some cases, people even thought I paid over value on it. But if you're a buy and hold investor, and I feel the most important aspect is not so much price, but location and the quality of the property. And again, I, I describe my avatars of who my investors are. I also have an avatar of who my tenants are as well. And my goal is to try to find properties that my perfect tenant is going to be looking for that they're going to want to rent. And if I could find the right property in the right location, I can attract the tenants I want. And if I decide I want to sell that property in five or 10 or 30 or never, when I do decide to sell it, I'm very confident I'll sell it for a lot more than I paid for it. And because I had such a great experience in working with the tenants, I wasn't tempted to sell that place two years later or five years later. I see so many times, and well, you're, you're from the Hamilton area. There are a lot of older, crappier properties. And if you've been following that market for a long time, the same is true in my market, very older properties. Those discounted properties that are being advertised as these incredible deals, they seem to come up on the market every two or three years, the same properties over and over again. If they were such an incredible opportunity for the person who bought that property, they wouldn't be looking to sell it two years later. They just wouldn't be. My properties, I buy them and they're never on this market again because they're, they're what I want to own. And my clients, even though the values have surged in the last couple of years, they haven't been wanting to sell their places because they're making too much money. But, so they can't do better than through real estate. So as much as I love getting a deal, finding the right property, the quality property, the quality location is my most important factor. And is buy and hold your favorite strategy? Is that Absolutely. It's as the armchair, and I, I sort of, walked away from that when you mentioned it, generally pretty lazy person. <laughs> and I don't want to be spending a lot of time on my investments. I really don't. And I want them to take as little time as possible. And, and in my book, I actually used six case studies of clients of mine. And one of the questions I'd ask them is how many hours a month are they spending on their properties? And in many cases, they were spending less than five hours per month on their portfolio and it may have been two to 10 properties. They were spending that much or that little amount of time. And meanwhile, that two to 10 properties has essentially set them up in a position where the, the rest of their life, they're financially stable. They've reached their financial freedom goals. And so that this side hustle, we're not talking about driving for Uber Eats or making scrunchies on the side. We're talking about something that could build sustained long-term wealth for both yourself and your family and, and hopefully your next generations. Now, topically, I, I don't think I can leave the topic of real estate without kind of getting your take on obviously the recent government initiatives, if, if that's the term federally. And it's not just Ontario. I know Ontario is getting impacted or potentially has going to be impacted more, but what's your take on the various kind of initiatives that are trying to happen with uh, with housing and, and with real estate that the government's taking? How do you see that affecting real estate investors? Yeah, I think they're, they're spending a lot of time on the, the catch words. They're blaming it on the big, bad foreign investors. And I can tell you, as somebody who is in the middle of the investor world, like, and before we hit record, Paul and I spent five minutes we, we know all the same people. And so we're both involved in this industry quite, quite closely. And all of the deals I ever did, not one time did I ever represent somebody who is not a Canadian resident 
And only once did I ever deal with a deal where the seller was a foreign seller. And even in that situation, they lived in Canada for a number of years, but because of business, they'd moved back to their original home. And, and that was it. And I've spoken to a number of other investors and foreign investors, I could tell you represent in outside of the Toronto condo market, represent significantly less than 1% of the total number of sales. It just is. And so it's a lot of attention for virtually no effect. Where I believe the number one scenario of the situation, and this is as a, as a potential investor, one needs to know this, what drives the real estate market is if a market has the right market fundamentals. What does that mean? A market that's growing in GDP, growing in job growth, and most importantly, growing in population. Because as more and more people grow in, or go in a market, there's only so many houses that are available. And like the game of musical chairs, if there's not enough chairs available, we've got a real issue. And that's what we're having right now with housing, just simply not enough housing. The number one thing that if the government is truly determined to increase or to lower the housing prices, or at least to moderate them, it would be to increase the supply. And they're really not making any strides to do that. And I've spoken with people that are fairly influential, and they don't really have any real desire to do that because there's so much pushback from the NIMBYs saying, not in my backyard, we don't want to be adding a multi-unit building or even taking that single family home next door and turning one or two units next to it. I don't want that. And that's, and with that in mind, if you find that growing property, that growing neighborhood, that's an incredible investment. And even if we do see a dip in the market for the next year or so, if it has the right market fundamentals, I'm expecting to see a surge in values over the next five to 10 years. So you can be very happy with that. What about the other strategies that they're, they're kind of like the flipping tax, which that seems like that is more of a direct hit for. Yeah. It, that... Well, and, but again, in my world, I'm a buy and hold guy. So it doesn't right. affect my line, my, my life at all, nor most of my investors. Everybody who's watched an episode of HGTV thinks that I could be a flipper too. And I can tell you that flippers are the ones that have been most successful as flippers are not guys that have their nine to five job and then they just simply hire out people and do all the work for them. And then they make a gazillion dollars in the process. In my experience, the flippers that have done well are doing a lot of the themselves and, and they're being compensated for their efforts. So it's basically it's elbow greases earn them the revenue that they've desired. I'm a huge supporter of people that do flipping. I happily bought a couple properties that were renovated by people I know and trust. They've made their money on the renovation then they've sold it. I bought it from them. And then that property has gone up a half a billion dollars in value. They made 50 grand, maybe. I made a half a million. And they did all the work. I'm okay with that. So my advice to anybody who's considering flipping is really run the numbers and, and see if it makes any sense. Even before this tax, I can tell you in Ontario right now, with the surge in values, it's been really tough for flippers to do really, really well in this industry. The buy and hold people are the ones that build the long-term sustained wealth. You're essentially, you're buying yourself a new job if you become a flipper. You have to do a lot of effort to, to be good at it. Hmm. And, and that's just too much work for me. And what do you think about the people that are getting out of the long-term rental market? And, and we're seeing a lot more kind of short-term, sometimes yeah. even mid-term rental. Absolutely. Do you yeah, think that's a good strategy? Or I love, I'm actually, I spoke before we recorded, I just stayed two months at a short-term rental in California. I'm a huge fan of short-term rentals. But again... Be honest with yourself of how much work you want to put into this effort. 
I can tell you that a short-term rent, an effective short-term rental, you are essentially having a mini hotel and you're the concierge of that hotel. And the ones that have been most successful treat it as a true business and a hotel. The ones that are wanting to set it and forget it, maybe only look at it every three to six months, buy and hold investing is, or a long-term rentals is certainly a far easier transition. The reason why a lot of people, especially in Ontario, have been hesitant to stay in this market is because the government has put such restrictions in terms of raising your rents and, and especially in situations where there's been, if the tenant hasn't paid you rent. I've been pretty fortunate and maybe, maybe if I'd had more bad experiences, I would have, I'd feel differently. But I can tell you that me and my clients, because we bought those great properties and great locations, we treated our people with great respect. We just haven't had missed rent payments. And my biggest challenge right now is my tenants like their places too much and they haven't been moving out. So we just don't have issues with it. And one thing I wanted to share is I'm a bit of a contrarian. When everybody is looking to sell their, their, their long-term rentals, that just reminds me that there's less of them available today than there was three years ago. And meanwhile, there's more residents in the buy market than there was three years ago. So every time there's a news story that goes out that sort of says, oh my God, there's a, short, you know, there's a shortage, a, a crisis going on in rentals. I'm thinking, hmm, I'd like to be the person who owns these properties that are their crisis thought. And, and honestly, it's been very effective for me. Any final kind of pieces of advice for either realtors or real estate investors, particularly looking forward the next 12, 24, 36 months? What are the things that you think people should stay focused on and keep doing when it comes hmm. to their, their marketing, their branding? I, I kind of touched on it earlier, but I want to go back to it is to make your business grow larger, make your focus go smaller. I find that so many younger investors are looking for the deal versus looking for the market. And when they're looking for the deal, the first property they find might be in Hamilton. The next property they find might be in Manitoba. And then they find one out in British Columbia or in, in Florida. And, and then they're trying to portray themselves the expert in this market. And then they're trying to find a buyer to go along with that, a partner to go in there. My advice to anyone getting started is become the market expert in one or maybe two towns. And even within a city the size of Hamilton, Hamilton's too large of an area. It should be one pocket of Hamilton that you feel is your, is your best market. And once you can convince the person that you are the expert in that area, it will go a long way to giving you the credibility to having potential investors decide to invest their hard-earned money with you because you are the expert. If you're just simply going willy-nilly all over the place and your marketing is there to support willy-nilliness, then you're simply not going to build the kind of career you're looking to build. And just an aside, and I do want to come back to what you just said, I'd heard a figure once that for every 200 houses, one will sell every year. Would that be... 200? Oh, it's less than that. It's the stat I use is people tend to move every 10 years. So one-tenth of your database likely looking to buy or sell in a given year. So if you're talking to realtors, if you've got a legitimate database of 100 people, that 10 people are going to buy or sell this year. And your goal is to make sure they buy or sell with you. Why I love working with investors is of the database of 100 people, 
I sometimes had 40 or 50 people looking to buy at least one property a year. So it made my business grow a lot better. I may not have had them buy as much of a property, but it was, they were taking action. So that was a really great way to build my business. I was working with a lot of investor buyers. There was one year I did 69 ends, 61 of them were with investor buyers or with buyers and almost all of them were investor buyers. Going back to your point about niching or specializing in one or two markets, is the danger for somebody who has, as you mentioned, like property and yeah, they've gone to Alberta because Alberta's kind of hot at the moment. And then they've gone to Eastern to you know, Moncton or something and bought Moncton. Is the type of investor they're attracting a very different type of investor? I think the investor is probably going to be way more focused on returns than having a good consistent income. They, they're looking for the quick potential, yeah. I'm guessing. But and, that and that's a fair comment. I'm a relationship guy. I really am. And when I was working more actively, I would actually, in some cases, talk people out of a property that I didn't think was a good fit for them. I, I would say, you're not ready yet. And, or maybe this, is, this one's too much work for you. Let's wait for the right one to come your way. But if you are just taking whatever deals are out there, you're right. You could find a certain person. It may not be someone through your database. It might be through your internet connections and such like that. And that's fine, but that's, that's not the kind of business I want to grow with. I want to build relationships with people. I want to have long-term. If there are blips along the way, I want to be working with them as a team. I may not have grown as quickly as the other guy, but I feel that my foundation of my portfolio is just simply so much stronger. And the amount of work that I would have to do with my properties is less. So it allowed me to grow at a faster rate or a stronger rate. Yeah. And you make, you make a good point because if I'm suddenly need to be an expert in Moncton and then a week later, an expert in Calgary, my due diligence is not going to be as good as you that has no. done that in a five mile radius or something. Well, yeah. Like if you can't, like, I believe that if you can't bike your entire area that you're an expert in, then you might even have too big of an area. Like it's uh, that's like, there are times that I know properties that are about to come on the market. And, and back when I was even really active, I would sometimes I'd see even before a coming soon sign came on, because I, I knew that market. And now, obviously, in, in the market the last couple of years, having an edge as far as knowing when a property is coming on the market may not be as big of a deal because there'd be 17 other offers before it even the sign went down. But now that it's starting to slow up again, this is where the smartest people, the most diligent people are going to most survive. The famous Warren Buffett line is, when the tide goes in, let's see you swimming naked, right? It's I want to be one who's prepared. And I think in the long run, it's going to make my business a stronger one. Right. So we've heard from the, the personal brand, the armchair investor. Do you have a favorite personal brand yourself? You know, I thought about that because you gave me that as a, something to think about. And I'm a huge, I don't know if fan's the right word, but I follow Grant Cordon a lot. And honestly, I, I'm not necessarily, I haven't purchased much. I've seen him in speaking events, but his level of confidence, his success that he portrays with himself, his knowledge, his cockiness has actually worked well for him. And there will be people that will be turned off by his personality. And that's okay. And he doesn't lose sleep over that. He's niched himself for a certain type of person. And honestly, he's made his focus smaller. He's looking for the right type of person. And now there's more of them than probably even he thought there would be. But those are the people that he's gravitated towards and he's always 10xing and and he has this brand and, and I'm impressed by that. And even though I maybe don't want to run my business in the same manner that he does, I have to respect the work he's done to build his brand. 
yeah, I think that's a good point. It, you don't necessarily need to love him or hate him, but see how he's gone about it and see what he does in terms of strategy and actions and consistency for sure. That's, that's consistency a is a good one. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what about a favorite uh, business book or podcast apart from your own, of course? <laughs> <laughs> well, my book, I, I'm kind of going with a couple that I've read recently. Like, I, I don't want to give you the classic rich dad, poor dad. Those are boring. But a couple of books that I've read recently, and actually I pulled it out just to show it for anybody who's looking, is the book Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. And, and one of the things that we investors have always, well, the ones who've had a level of success is for the time you were 16 or 15, you've always been looking to grow and grow and do and buy and do as many things as you can, like buy as much, build your wealth, just grow, grow, grow. There's got to be a time in your life where you've been working all these years for a certain objective. There's only so many what he refers to as go-go years. And you've got to take advantage of it during your go-go years because pretty soon you're going to enter your slow-go years and eventually your no-go years. And we all have parents or grandparents that hit that age where, honestly, other than going to Shoppers Drug Mart, that was their adventure for the week. And so we're building all this wealth. We're doing all this success. Take the opportunity to reflect on what you've done and take action in terms of living your best life. And that's what they talk about. Like they actually say a perfect scenario is to give all your money away while you're living to whether it be for yourself on things you do or your family or what have you. I, I maybe don't want to die with zero, but I don't necessarily need to have a hundred or a billion hundred million or a billion dollars, 10 million, eight to 20 million is, is a pretty great objective. And if I could just maintain that, live off my money and then live my best life, I'm totally cool with that. So that's number one. And the other one that I just, just, just read, which, which I think is relevant, is there's a book that I read called Lessons from the Mouse by Dennis Snell. And it's actually a shorter audio book that I listened to. And it talks about, he worked for Disney for many, many, many years. And, and he shared a lot of the lessons that he learned at Walt Disney that you can apply in your own business. And so if you're looking to build a brand, there isn't very many brands that are more successful in Disney. So if you can learn one or two things from that book, I think that would be a, a worthwhile download for you. And it was like a four hour download. Lessons in the mouse. And it's funny, I just finished reading the biography of Robert Iger, who was Disney's CEO for the last 15 years. Yes. Yeah. And it totally impressed me around his humbleness and kind of his approach to leadership, like very inclusive leadership. It surprised me for a CEO. He was not what I expected. A really enjoyable read. So I'd recommend that on top of that. So that's good. Oh, good. Good. What about, do you have a favorite or a, a tool or resource that you're using right now that you're enjoying using or? You sent me that one ahead of time. I gave it some thought and I was trying to come up with little gadgets that I use. And I'm not a gadget guy. Like I've got my cell phone and stuff like that. But my advice to anyone is to use what works best for you. I'm an old school guy. I've got a notebook that actually has the title Plans for World Domination. <laughs> and honestly, I've now got, I think this, yeah, this is volume four. And I just make notes on this. So if I'm attending an event, I'm making notes. If I, my things I need to do tomorrow as a task, I'm making notes. You talk to somebody who's maybe 15, 20 years younger than me, and they're thinking, oh my God, put it all on your phone. But that didn't work for me. I tried doing that. I'm not, I can make little notes faster than I can work on my phone. 
And as a result, I wasn't writing stuff down. By having it all in one spot, I can refer back and it's worked for me. It's old school, but it doesn't matter what it does as long as you access the, have things at your fingertips and have your list of things you want to do the next day and the next week, your goals, your objectives. I put it all in my book and I literally cross it off. If I haven't accomplished my goal, I put it on for the next day and the next day, the next day. And I don't let myself leave it off. I don't just dismiss it. I just keep putting it on there. So I say, fuck, all right, I'll do it. Jeez, let's get off my list. And that's been working for me. And I think there is some science behind the writing embeds it deeper. You remember it better than clicking it on your phone, but uh, I'm sure somebody... it hasn't worked. The phone and the tech hasn't worked for me. Physically writing it down has been exactly what I've needed. And it's honestly, you can go back and look at my journals from the last 10 years and, or some of the goals. I actually, I did that a year ago or so. I looked at my objectives, my goals from 2006, 2007, 2008. And some of the objectives I had were paying off a bill or paying off something or, you know, or paying off my credit cards. And, and my goals were so like, I look back and I say, Oh my God, those are my, I was dreaming to pay off all my credit cards. Now I'm thinking, Oh, do I want to spend two months in California or do I want to try to stay for three? And, you know, it's, right. you know, it's, it's a very different world. And honestly, just in the quote that you're probably going to ask me as well, my yep. favorite quote is I'm a big fan of the Bill Gates quote. People tend to overestimate how much you can accomplish in one year, but yet they tend to underestimate what they can accomplish in 10. And that's, that's such a big thing for me because people have these six month and one year plans. They expect to go from unemployed and weighing 600 pounds to being a multimillionaire and a supermodel. It's, it's just not going to happen in a year. It takes you time and there's many steps along the process. And, and if you set your objectives, keep moving that, moving that marker further and further along before you know it, you are the supermodel millionaire. <laughs> it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've given a lot of thought to how I've branded myself in the past. I've done a lot of education on that, but it's never been something that's been my primary focus, but at the same time, it's been always there and it's been important to me. So, so that's the direction. Like I've, I've done probably 50 podcasts since I've released my book, which is a year next week, actually. And Congratulations. so thank you, but uh, I've not done one quite like this and that's cool. I enjoy different stuff, but it, you made me have to think. Michael, uh, how can people find out more about you, find about the book? Where can you direct them to? The book again is called Armchair Real Estate Millionaire. And for those that are watching it live here, instead of this is what it looks like here, for those that are looking. So how's that for being ready? And, uh, and so the book is Armchair Real Estate Millionaire. If you're sitting there anyway, you might as well build your wealth. And it's armchairrealestatemillionaire.com is how you can find me. Also doorstowealth.com is, is me from a real estate perspective. And from there, you can, you can find me where you can find the book. It's available on Amazon Indigo. And I actually, I'm really proud of this. I, I worked again, a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I did a little bit of an audio book. I did the introduction. I hired a voice actor, the main content. I was there as the producer or whatever you want to call it, making sure he was doing everything the right way and focusing on the right stuff. But I'm really, really proud of that. And, and People that have listened to it have said it's elite, which is kind of a flattering thing. And so if you have the opportunity, I, I really think it'll be valuable for, for anyone looking to build their real estate business or 
if you want to become a better realtor, this I believe these are some strategies to to help you find your customer base and maybe take action yourself. Wonderful. We'll make sure all of that is in in the show notes. And uh, again, Michael, thank you. Uh, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting it with has you today. Been. And have yourself a brantastic day. Brantastic. I was ready for it. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thanks. Well, was that brantastic? Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business? So get to it. And if you're wondering where your real estate investing brand currently stands and some steps to make it more brandtastic, you can download our free REI brand checklist at reibranded.com forward slash checklist. That's reibranded.com forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening and have a brandtastic day.